The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Sportbox. Your headlines this hour. Netflix suffers its first subscriber loss in over a decade and forecasts worse to come. Shares sink after hours, wiping out a quarter of the streaming group's market cap. As CEO Reed Hastings says he's open to a cheaper ad-supported plan. Allowing consumers who would like to have a lower price and are advertising tolerant Um, get what they want makes a lot of sense. So that's something we're looking at now. We're trying to figure out over the next year or two. Credit Suisse forecasts a first quarter loss as the lender warns it'll take a 200 million Swiss franc hit relating to provisions and credit losses from the war in Ukraine. The IMF cuts its global growth forecast while warning of a sharp rise in risk to the financial system. The fund's director for monetary and capital markets tells CNBC the central bank response must be assertive. To get inflation back to target, monetary policy has to tighten uh, tremendously. Uh, uh, the Federal Reserve uh, really has to act aggressively here. Earnings fuel U.S. markets to their best day in more than a month, with bank and technology stocks pushing higher. Asian equities echo the gains and oil prices recover after a sharp drop. So very good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. So we're going to kick off this morning with a conversation about Netflix, because clearly the uh, 23% decline in the share price overnight and the $35 billion wiped off the market cap is a big story. But then, as we were ready to come to the anchor desk and start the program this morning, the first headline started to come through from Credit Suisse. So we've been somewhat preempted in our headline story, but let's just bring you up to speed with Credit Suisse because this is fascinating. And I am scheduled to get on a plane next week and go to Zurich, and we're going to talk to Credit Suisse. Hopefully, if this all goes well over the next few minutes, we will talk to Credit Suisse and we'll talk to UBS and we'll find out what life is like in the Swiss banking sector. We've got a a new topic on the table this morning because what we've now learned is Credit Suisse is getting ahead of that earnings announcement by pre-announcing the fact that it's going to make a loss this first quarter. So let me just walk you through the details rather slowly here because there are a number of numbers that you need to be aware of and to take on board. Credit Suisse will increase legal provisions and expects a loss in reported earnings for the first quarter. That's the headline. The group will increase litigation provisions relating to developments of a number of previously disclosed legal matters of approximately 600 million Swiss francs. The group goes on to say there will be resulting total litigation provisions then for the quarter of approximately 700 million Swiss francs. And we would expect to report a loss as a consequence of this increase in reserves. Our results will be adversely affected by an aggregate of approximately 200 million Swiss franc of negative revenues and provisions for credit losses. And the reason it's 200 million and not 600 or 700 is the fact that they have managed to offset that hit by a recovery in provisions of approximately 170 million 
in respect of claims on Archegos, we all remember the Archegos story, of course, and by real estate gains of approximately 160 million Swiss francs. So when you walk through the numbers, they're basically offside by about 200 million Swiss francs here. Now, I remember when I trotted out to Canary Wharf back in February, I think it was about the 10th of February earlier this year, when we talked to Credit Suisse to wrap up the year and the fourth quarter, I asked Thomas Gottstein that question about how clear they were on litigation costs and litigation provisions. And there was a real effort, I felt, at that meeting and uh, in that interview for him to say, OK, mea culpa, we know what we did, we know what we've got to do, let's put this all behind us here. So it'll be interesting to see how the share price reacts this morning, because I think there will be some disappointment among investors that these legacy stories continue to nibble away at the business at a time when everybody was hoping that he and the new chairman could draw a big fat black line under all of these legal issues from last year and before. Death by a thousand cuts. We keep on getting bad news. Mm. Every other month or quarter, we seem to have a, a continuation of the negative uh, fl news flow around the developments that have taken place. And we mentioned this before. What point do you step in and pick up the stock? I think it's still a gigantic leap of, a leap of faith. We don't know that this is now behind the bank. So if you look at the share price performance, I think it reflects some of that. You've got uh, rival UBS that's been traveling high year to date to roughly about two and a half percent. Compare that to Credit Suisse, down nearly 18 percent year to date. So there's a story about uh, some of the woes taking place at Credit Suisse, and I think that's reflected in the stock. But, you know, management is going to take probably some time to have to try and woo back investors here to try and prove that the problems uh, don't continue on. If you think about reputational damage, mm -hmm. I think that's where we have seen rival UBS make gains at this point. They are picking up business. They are uh, ma managing to make gains on the back of the problems that Credit Suisse continue to suffer. Well, do you, you remember after the global financial crisis, what did we all say? We said banking has to get more simple. We want to hear less noise from the banks about the things that they've done wrong. And of course, you know, it, to a certain extent, I do feel a little for Thomas Gottstein because he came in as the new broom ultimately to tidy up after the scandals of spying and all the nonsense that they hoped to leave behind by the confrontations in the middle of Zurich and the, um, the, the management issues related to personnel and so on and so forth. Um, and then ultimately, we had the revelations around um, Green Seal and around Archegos, and that obviously had financial implications and litigation implications. And then to cap it all, you know, when um, Antonio um, Horta Osario then decided he was going to go off traveling and ignore some of the COVID protocols, another own goal for the organization, but to an extent for all those men and women who work diligently every day in Credit Suisse, it was a massive slap in the face. And again, another management owned goal that they didn't deserve and the customers didn't deserve and the shareholders didn't deserve. And I don't, I don't want to get on a soapbox about this, but if you make that much money and you are that important to the image of the bank, then you better behave yourself. Mm. So here we are now. Um, we've got an announcement on um, what's clearly going to be a disappointing set of numbers then for the first quarter here. I just hope that with Axel Lehman in the seat as chairman and Thomas Gottstein 
having weathered a lot of the negative stories. And let, let's face it, a lot of this is legacy issues that still need to be cleared up. This is not new scandals. I just hope that they can come through this quarter and deliver something that looks more exciting for the second quarter. The problem is events, 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 dear boy. We've now got a war in Ukraine. We've now got China COVID zero um, buttoning down the world's second largest economy. We've got the Fed and apparently a whole bunch of Fed speakers now who are talking about, well, you know, the final rate on rates in the in the United States could be anywhere between two and four percent, depending on who you listen to here. So there are so many issues that are going to make life difficult for banks that are meant to be the lifeblood of the economy. Can I ask a question too around what we do with the, the negative news flow around Ukraine for Credit Suisse? Because if you think about all the other events from our Kegas to Greensill, this is a bank that's been very conservative in forecasting the risk. Uh, only updating us says fresh information comes to light about the risk exposure and what the costs are going to be. So can I ask a question around Ukraine? Is this the worst of it? I mean, we know this is a bank that has very high net wealth clients. Is this related to uh, doing business with Russian clients? You know, what's the relevance here to the bank in terms of this 200 million Swissy of a negative revenue, the credit loss provisions? Does this fully account for everything we may see or could there be more down the line uh, if uh, sanctions continue to be ratcheted high from here? You know, is this it? Do we draw a line? under this number around Ukraine? Yeah, well, no. I mean, and that's the problem, isn't it? Because um, US uh, legislators are beginning to ask questions um, of Credit Suisse's suggestion or encouragement to a lot of the clients who may have had uh, Rush-related investments, I believe. They were saying, well, look, if you've got legacy paperwork that you don't need, credit destroy it, get rid of it. Well, when a bank starts encouraging uh, clients to um, destroy documentation, then you kind of go, mm, hang on a second here. Is there something in that documentation that regulators might be interested in that you don't want them to see? I mean, look, it, it is current behavior now in most companies to destroy emails or internal correspondence mm after say three months or six months or whatever period they decide is appropriate because one it takes up space on servers which you don't really need and two we've seen from legal cases over recent years that the authorities are quite happy to demand past records and trawl back through and do a little bit of a hunt for anything actually that they think might get you into trouble so on the one hand, you could say, okay, understandable that they're doing this. On the other, you could say, well, is there anything to hide here? And of course, you know, I don't want to preempt the interview, which hopefully we're still going to have next week. But it is a question worth asking. Was it the appropriate language or terminology to encourage uh, clients to go through that process of destroying data or records? Well, you think about financial documents that we all keep for tax purposes. I mean, how many years out do we keep them for? At least a decade, right? Papers sitting everywhere, effectively, just in case uh, tax officials come knocking. Yeah. Uh, you think in that context that you do keep paperwork for a very long time, just in case there are questions asked, so you can provide the evidence and uh, clarity around you know, certain financial information. So destroying it 
seems to be uh, quite a strange approach. But we need to move on and take you back to what was actually the top story of the day, and that is Netflix. As a big question has been asked around some of these growth areas of the market on the back of Netflix, as shares in the company created in after-hours trade, wiping almost $40 billion off the firm's market cap after the streaming service reported its first decline in users for more than a decade. The group lost 200,000 subscribers in the first quarter and predicts it will lose 2 million more next quarter. Now, Netflix says suspending its service in Russia cost it 700,000 subscribers. Excluding that country, though, new customers would have risen by 500,000. Analysts had expected more than five times that figure. On the earnings call, the CEO, Reed Hastings, said the company was going to crack down on password sharing as one of its major issues working on uh, how to monetize sharing. Um, you know, we'd been uh, thinking about that for a couple of years. Um, but, you know, when we were growing fast, it wasn't the high priority to uh, work on. And now we're working super hard on it. And, you know, remember, these are over 100 million households <laughs> that already are choosing to view Netflix. They love the service. Uh, we just got to get paid, you know, at some degree for them. The company also said it's exploring the option of an ad-based option to its service. Allowing consumers who would like to have a lower price and are advertising tolerant um, get what they want makes a lot of sense. So that's something we're looking at now. We're trying to figure out over the next year or two. Um, but think of us as quite open to offering uh, even lower prices with advertising as a, a consumer choice. Netflix has clearly been a bellwether in the sector, so we've been looking closely at some of the other stocks as shares and other major streaming companies followed Netflix lower in extended trade. Disney fell as much as 5% in after hours, while Roku sank more than 6% after rallying during the regular trade. Sophie Lundiates joins us, lead equity analyst at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Sophie, thank you very much for joining us. Huge move in the stock price today and all sorts of excuses, whether these are fading pandemic trends, Russia and the, the impact uh, of sanctions and doing business in that country. But of course, questions too around inflation. And as this company has put up prices, whether we are now at the point where uh, some viewers are just switching off. What did you make of the numbers that Netflix produced on the subscriber front? Hi, good morning. Um, obviously, there's a huge amount to unpack here. Um, revenue growth of under 10% was frankly um, quite a shock in, in, in the wrong way. Um, and you've used the word there, excuses. And I think there was a lot of that coming through in, in the wording, the rhetoric being used. Um, there's a lot of blame being placed on the suspension of Russian services. But even without that, that headwind, um, subscription growth would have, would have massively missed consensus estimates still. Um, so I think that, that that deserves attention. Um, there's just a huge cocktail of headwinds going on here. Inflation is certainly a big one. We know that household budgets are under huge strain. Um, so people are switching off. Um, Netflix's great brand and market share dominance um, was, in my mind, going to hold it in better stead than we read last night. So there's certainly a lot going on here that has been incredibly disappointing. And I think they are genuinely in really quite a tricky spot. If we think about the narrative so far, Sophie, this is a company that uh, spends up on content. It has strong series and movies coming to uh, the platform, and typically that does spur more subscribers to sign up to the service. And we know that there are big ticket ones, Stranger Things, Ozark uh, coming to the network. What does this mean, though, in future? Does this company still continue to spend the same amount on content if it can't attract more subscribers, if we're at peak levels? That is fundamentally the big 
challenge. No one can deny that Netflix is capable of creating hit after hit. Um, but that's an incredibly expensive undertaking. And, you know, I think it was $17 billion spent last year on content. And the difference when you look at it from a sector perspective, the likes of Disney and now Amazon with the MGM deal, is they already have a huge back catalogue of content, which means that they have stuff ready to go um, at a much faster, more lucrative rate than Netflix does. So they're saying that the way that they're going to encourage more subscribers is to keep creating all these hits. But that is going to come at enormous cost. And I think that we're now looking at a situation where they might actually be on the back foot of rivals, which just is something we wouldn't have been saying just a few short quarters ago. Um, Sophie, let, let me clarify that then. Are you saying that this is a problem that Netflix management can't solve? No, I'm not saying that because, you know, you look at their market share position. When you think of streaming, Netflix is synonymous with that. You know, they had a hand in inventing this culture. And I don't think that their dominance should be forgotten. Um, I'm simply saying that they need to be peddling incredibly hard and incredibly quickly um, to reaffirm their position and keep ahead of the pack. They are still front of the pack. Um, that is until we have the numbers, obviously, from, from Disney and Amazon over the coming weeks. Um, their, their position is, is an incredible one, um, but they have, they have slipped. What do you think this tells us about the sensitivity now um, within consumers to the spike in inflation that we've seen, the fact that um, food prices, fuel prices, um, shelter costs have all gone up and salaries have effectively not kept up with those increases. Are we now discovering that actually the discretionary sector is incredibly vulnerable? Yes, I think that we are seeing absolutely the effects here of household budgets are simply there is no fat left to trim in a lot of instances. And things like your streaming service, or you know, a lot of households have multiple services, so maybe they're cancelling one or two of those. Um, and that's what we're seeing. And I think you're absolutely right there. It's, it's Anything non-essential, I think, for a great deal of households and perhaps at a faster rate than was, was predicted, those, those things are frankly being rubbed off shopping lists. Sophie, just to take that a little bit further down the road, I mean, if you think about uh, the conversation that's been had with a lot of investors lately as yields have gone up, where, you know, what's the role of technology here? And one of the, the points that uh, a lot of people hit back and say, well, you know, technology is more resilient because it has these subscriber revenues, that these are bankable revenues uh, that are not going to be hit in a downturn. As we can just see, those subscribers can switch off. They can sever ties with the service. How far do we take the Netflix story as we think about technology stocks? Yes, so you're absolutely right. Subscription-based revenues tend to be massively favoured in the market. They are traditionally stickier. So to see it unwind in this way is definitely slightly unnerving. Um, but I think you can't necessarily put them all in the same in the same boat. You know, there are certain softwares out there that the world doesn't know how to function without anymore. So those subscription revenues um, are slightly more resilient, I would say. Um, I think subscription-based, but being part of a nice-to-have product is a bit of a niche combination. Um, so it's not necessarily quite the same um, criticism that can be can be leveled there because yes it is subscription based but it's definitely not a an essential spend sophie thank you very much for joining us uh, sophie lund with us lead equity analyst at hargreaves lansdowne
Tesla reports its first quarter results later today, with investors focusing on how the COVID lockdown in Shanghai, as well as the company's new factories in Berlin and Texas, will affect the EV maker's bottom line and target deliveries. Now, Wall Street will also be keen to see if the CEO, Elon Musk, discusses his $43 billion offer for Twitter and if Tesla shares will be used to help finance the deal. Uh, coming up on the program, then uh, a more dovish tone from uh, once one Fed speaker as Raphael Bostic expresses concerns over possibly prolonged rate hikes. More on that conversation when we come back. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Let's take a look at the market action. And as we've been talking about Netflix and just uh, some of the pain that's been expressed uh, with their subscriber numbers and uh, how challenging the company has faced the uh, revenue picture at this point, it's in contrast to the broader narrative yesterday where investors are being encouraged by what they're hearing during earnings season. That is a, a very strong uh, catalyst for the market at this point because as we talk about inflation, what impact that's going to have on the bottom line, that's been a, a huge focus for a lot of investors pouring through the report cards. And as you can see, it was a very strong print for the technology sector, 2.1% bounce. Let's see whether Netflix takes the shine off the sector today. Uh, but uh, 280 odd points to the upside, very strong for the Nasdaq, 1.6 on the S&P as a result. And the Dow also very firm, almost 500 points to the upside, as you can see, or about 1.5%. So right across the board, we saw a bounce. Home Depot, one of the big movers for the Dow. And Amazon, the big tech name, moving the uh, S&P 500. In terms of treasuries, though, investors are still concerned about what they're hearing. A hawkish commentary and even a conversation about a potential jumbo move in rates, uh, three quarters of 1%. That was being discussed by some Fed members. So let's just see what the impact is across the course of the week. The yields already stepped up 2.94 is where we're at uh, bond sell-off uh, causing these yields to rally as you can see and we've uh, very much increased from the levels we've had on the charts of 2.82 percent Friday's close last week so you can see again we eke out uh, more gains on this yield. Let's see the implications for the dollar. You can see uh, morning session sterling euro yen all trying to claw back some territory we're up about a third of a percent on sterling and perched above the 130 handle uh, although we've slipped under the 109 level on euro again 108.15 where we're sitting even with the morning gains the dollar yen trade weaker by a similar tune so you're seeing uh, some fairly decent moves on the charts today let's get to what we're facing on the commodities complex we've got 108.50 a bounce of about 1.2 percent on brent so we are marching up again WTI also leaning in the same direction, but gold is being undermined at this point by the yield story. And you can see we've drifted us south by about a quarter of 1%. The Asian markets, this is the early picture across the board as we pick up from the very strong trade on Wall Street. It's been positive stocks in Tokyo. The Nikkei 225 up eight tenths of a percent or 200 plus points, only slight gains for Hong Kong. A weak uh, session playing out for the Chinese market down a modest 
third of a percent in Australia, pretty much hugging the flat line, although tilted in the green at this point. Jeff? Yeah, I think Shanghai is um, is interesting because clearly there was some disappointment around the government announcement or the PBOC announcement anyway. China has kept its benchmark lending rate unchanged despite expectations of a cut after Beijing said it would introduce more easing to help the economy cope with current lockdowns. Meanwhile, in the States, Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic has struck a cautious tone on the prospect of prolonged rate hikes out of concern over its impact on the U.S. recovery. He told CNBC he sees rates rising to 1.75% by the end of the year, a day after his more hawkish FOMC colleague, James Bullard, forecast them at 3.5%. Meanwhile, Chicago Fed President Charles Evans met them both halfway, talking about uh, a two uh, and a quarter to two and a half percent rise for 2022. He didn't rule out further hikes, though, if needed going forward. Bostic said he agrees that the immediate priority is getting prices under control. I do think that it is important that we start to see inflation move uh, back down closer to our two percent target. I do think, however, that some of that's going to happen uh, by actions and developments that may not be associated with us. If we can get supply chains to resolve, we can start to see people come back into the labor force so that uh, employers are able to increase their supply. That can reduce the, the, the gap between demand for goods and the supply for goods, which is an important contributor to the elevated prices that we're seeing today. Raphael Bostic there. The Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan has said consumer spending is healthy despite rising costs. He told CNBC his bank is well positioned to handle sharp rate rises as they come. When we saw the repricing of the Fed last time, all the way you know, from the floor of zero up to 2%, you, know, you could see our pricing go through. And even while that went on, we grew our deposit base 5% in the preceding 12 months. So we can grow as a Fed's rate rise because the team does a very good job of getting more customers and doing a great job for them in the digital capabilities, the branch capabilities, the wealth management, uh, uh, financial advisors and private bankers. Across the board, they do a great job. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.